slam the door for one of the finest final rounds in Open Championship history on the way. Oh, that goes down! Yes, the double fist pop for Lefty! One hand in the Claret Jug, the other on his fifth major championship. It's all come together here in your field. Pretty much unanimously, when you ask someone what their favorite part of the first day of school is, they will say the part of the day where we get to share what we did over summer vacation. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? It's like some teachers would make you write it. Like first essay of the year was, this is what I did over summer vacation. Other teachers might treat it as like a show and tell. You know, come on up and and tell your classmates what you did. And we had a pretty interesting summer vacation. We did, yes. So, first things first, we went viral, right? Is that is that fair <laughs> to say? Is yeah, that, you is and that, uh, RD did there, our buddy Richard Deitch. Our Twitter feed, to some degree, went viral. Right. And we were able to expand our audience thanks to Richard Deitch's idea to retweet, essentially, an idea I had about how lucky it is to have what you might consider the best or one of the best moments of your life to have a picture of that. And in that has meant the podcast being mentioned on things like CNN.com and Entertainment.com and the San Diego Tribune blog and Good Morning America yesterday, the CBS Evening News. And we're excited... Hopefully, we have some new ears today, and we're excited to bring you a really great show, which includes interviews with Greg Bedard, who's one of the staff writers at the newly launched Monday Morning Quarterback website. Also, Damon Hack from the Golf Channel, formerly of Sports Illustrated, to talk about the British Open. And something different, Stephen Hyden, who's going to join us to talk about Pearl Jam and music. He's the music critic over at Grantland. That was another thing we did over summer vacation is we went to Pearl Jam, and that ruled. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, so we got to see Pearl Jam. We went viral. What else did we do? What else did you do? Anything cool with the girls? No, not really. Uh, lucky for us, though, there wasn't a lot of sports stuff going on, really. There was. I know the first week we were off, we thought this is a perfect week to be off because nothing happened. So. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of times where I was like, oh, man, we should be on right now. Right. Other than like to kind of talk about everything that was going on on Twitter right. and maybe to better capitalize on kind of extra attention for, for the, the website and the Twitter account and for the podcast itself. But ultimately, we knew what we were doing by going off then because there's just, it's a dead part of the, part of the year. But uh, it is Season 3, Episode 18, July 23rd, 2013. We are the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett, and my co-host is Don Russ, who I owe a public apology to because I was asked to be on the morning sports talk radio show (laughs) here in Buffalo to talk about the pictures on the internet and the podcast, and I somehow did not, in the 10 minutes I was on, mention Don at all. It's all right. Which wasn't very nice of me. You did good, though. It sounded great. 
feel guilty about that. And you can still find that at the audio vault at WGR550.com. Right. If you're interested in checking me out on there. Uh, I mentioned the guests. Great show. Uh, season 3, episode 17, you can find in our audio vault, so to speak. Lee Jenkins and Alex Papadimus were on that show, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters. Next week, we have a really cool show. We'll talk more about it later. But we're going to have Elizabeth Merrill from ESPN.com. Kind of a challenge, a booking challenge that RD put out to me, and I never fail booking challenges. <laughs> uh, he said we don't have enough ladies on the podcast, ignoring the wonderful relationship we have with people like Jane Levy and Katie Baker and Sarah Kwok and all the other females that have been on the show. That might be it, but could be. Sounds better to say, and all the other females that have been on the show. But Elizabeth Merrill will be on with us next week. Also, there's a cool iPad-only sports magazine called MVP Magazine. Okay. And uh, we're going to have the main man. His name's Ron something. I can't remember right the second. He's going to be <laughs> on the show next week, and I'll promise by then I know his last name. So we got good stuff ahead today and good stuff ahead next week. Before we can get any of that, we start our podcast off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Baseball is at the uh, forefront of the news again. And actually it might be... For just what you'd expect it to be there for, unfortunately, and that is uh, steroid use or PED use, as they like to be called now again. But Ryan Braun, one of the best players in baseball, a one-time MVP, has been caught cheating in this whole, what's the name of the place? Biogenesis. Biogenesis saga here that we heard. Doesn't sound like he's denying it this time. No. In fact, it almost sounds like he just wants it to go away by... he basically struck a plea bargain with the league and he's going to sit out the rest of the season and forfeit something like $3 million. But keep the multi-millions that are on the rest of the contract. Right. He's got like a hundred million left in this contract. Uh, I'm not going to beat up Ryan Braun too much because I think this is a baseball problem. We've talked about this before. I, I know some people think baseball has gotten better. I don't know if people have just gotten better at hiding this stuff or, or it's what, probably but, gotten better to some degree. It's probably not the raging, right, raging it's not issue the it was in 1998, right? Bonds, McGuire, right. Sosa issue. But uh, the problem baseball has right now is a problem with perception. Anytime a guy comes out and does some amazing things, the first thought that's going to go through casual fans or hardcore fans' mind is, is he cheating? Is it's it, happening is right it now. Absolutely. Uh, with Chris Davis, 37 home runs, second most home runs ever at the All-Star break for an American League player. And he's now answering questions on Twitter about whether or not he's cheating right. from fans. And does the average baseball fan know who Chris Davis even was before this year? No. Probably not. And that's exactly the red flag that always gets thrown up. And maybe he's doing it totally legit. Maybe he changed something about just the way he hits or something in the offseason that made him better. But the question marks are going to be there, unfortunately. And that's a problem baseball has. They have to fix it. And... uh I think one thing that needs to happen is players. I know you. There's an occasional player here and there. Players need to come out and not say things like, 
you know, he made a mistake. I made mistakes in my life, so I'm not going to. No, I mean, this guy's taking money out of your pockets. That's $103 million that some other outfielder could have got doing it fairly uh, without cheating. Jeff Passan blasted him. Yeah, he did. Uh, Aaron Rodgers now looks like a dope for defending this guy. Yeah, he owes his whole salary to us, Yes. Right? Yeah, and Ryan Braun owes his life, apparently, from his statements last year. But it just, it's, as I'm a very casual fan of baseball, if you, if you can even call me that, and this doesn't help. Uh, this is almost something that, to me, is like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm not surprised by it. It's the reasons we don't get too into sprinting and bike racing and things like that where you almost assume that someone is cheating, cheating before right. you assume they're not cheating. And baseball is getting to that point. And Chris Davis is a great example. This is a guy who debuted in, in 2008, played 80 games. He hit 17 home runs. 2009, he played 113 games. He hit 21 home runs. 2010, he only played 45 games. He hit one home run. Jeez. 2011, he played 31 games for the Orioles, 31 games for the Rangers, and he hit five home runs. Not in 50, that's 59 games. 2012, his longest major league season of 139 games. He hit 33 home runs, and here he is, 99 games into 2013 with 37 home runs and 97 RBIs. Wow. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, I'm not going to call that guy a cheater. No, I have he, no idea. Right. I have no idea. But that's the first thing everybody's going to think. And it's funny you mentioned this. Uh, you've joked with me before that I do all my show prep on Reddit, and that's yep. largely true. Uh, someone posted a picture of, I don't remember what it was. It was the fastest, maybe 100-meter times. Like I think it was a Wikipedia article. And they took a screenshot of the Wikipedia article, and they crossed off all the names of players that were later associated with drug use, there's like two players left on that, and it's Usain Bolt and some other American guy that did it. And Track and Field just had a big uh, steroid bust here, or a PED bust, uh, like last week when we were on break. Uh, you know, four more guys, a couple Jamaicans, a couple Americans. And the sports just have to do something about it. I mean, it sounds really harsh to say a baseball player loses 50 games, then 100 games, then they're done or whatever. But Ryan Braun, if you're Ryan Braun, you lost $3 million, but you have $100 million just waiting for you. And so, your team's not in it, in it this year, so basically you get the rest no, of terrible. the year off. Right. You know, just to chill. You got all that money you've already made in the bank that I'm sure is going to make this time not suck. Oh, yeah, he's you know, not He's not living starving. paycheck to paycheck. Right. And then you get to come back next year. You get to say all the right things, you know, I'm sorry, it'll never happen again. You're going to get this second chance from America, like always seems to happen, and right. things are just going to move on. Yeah. But baseball has a, pro a big problem. Like we said, those other sports do too, but those are fringe sports. This isn't. And Chris Davis is from Longview, Texas. I wonder if he's a freestyle rapper like fellow Longview, Texas native Malcolm Kelly. <laughs> All right, my first thing today, Phil Mickelson, someone who's probably never been associated with performance and no, I wouldn't enhancing so. drugs, considering his uh, nickname is. Hefty the lefty, the hefty lefty, yeah. Uh, he won the British Open, which is his fifth career uh, Grand Slam title and his third of four Grand Slams. Now only needs the U.S. Open to complete the career Grand Slam. Basically, Phil Mickelson is a few things. One, one of the most likable athletes in sports. Sure. He's a family man. He's in extremely compelling. He's very fun to watch. His game is flawed, and his game is 
incredible. He has ups, he has downs. He goes into the final hole of the U.S. Open with the lead and then flames out. And then <laughs> he shoots a 66 on a Sunday in a British Open, a major that a lot of people never thought he would ever win. He is an incredible athlete, and he's turning into one of the greatest golfers of all time. Right. And he's doing it in the Tiger Woods era. Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> and uh, it's yeah. incredible. It's incredible to watch, and we're going to talk with Damon Hack from the Golf Channel about this a little bit more in a bit here. Yeah, if Tiger Woods is Michael Jordan, who is Phil Mickelson? Because, I mean, that's Phil Mickelson, had he'd be the best golfer Maybe of a, a lot Lajuan. of other eras. Right. You know, someone who's got titles. Right. Still. But maybe not when Jordan was at his best. Obviously, the one year Jordan wasn't even there. The other year, Jordan had come back later. I mean, so, the difference is, I mean, Tiger was still the number one player in the world not too long ago, wasn't he? Tiger he keeps, won four tournaments. It's won four tournaments in 2013. Right, and he keeps finishing in the top ten. Or yeah, whatever. he's, he's just playing had bad really weekends. well, actually. But, so, yeah, I shouldn't, I shouldn't pick on Phil too much for being second best. It's, <clears throat> he's... Only behind the best player in the world, really. So, And maybe the most dominant athlete of all, all time. time. Right. So definitely nothing to be ashamed of there. But he's certainly compelling and exciting and easy to root for. Great family shot at the end there of him and his girls, his two daughters and his wife kind of hugging. and Yeah, super likable guy. Yeah. My second thing, Von Miller. Uh, I don't mean to be so negative with my three things. Von Miller is facing a four-game suspension, which is currently in the appeals process for... Substance abuse. Um, I read an article on ESPN in one of their blogs that suggests that, quote, it does not involve steroids and related substances policy. But they don't they don't release that info, I don't think, the NFL. So I don't know if that quote can be trusted. I think that might just be a, a league source type thing. I heard on a, a local radio today, why do we beat up Ryan Braun and not Von Miller? And my thought was that was, was this. Football... Largely, you get you got a lot of guys getting in trouble for stupid reasons, uh, like for reasons that hurt themselves. Well, <laughs> like <laughs> murder, right? Uh, drinking and driving, that dumb things. I my thought was football has a stupidity problem, baseball has a cheating problem. It's a lot easier to say, well, Von Miller's an idiot. That doesn't represent the whole league, even though I mean it seems like there's a lot of idiots in that league. But I don't have to hate the Broncos because of what Von Miller did. Whereas baseball, it just feels like everyone's cheating. Has Von Miller come out and said that this was Adderall yet? Because that's like the Vogue thing to do in with football. the football suspensions. Is oh, it was just Adderall, and uh, I didn't know. And or what did uh, of all people, a like goalie in the NHL, Jose Theodore, said he was taking uh, some hair growth. Right, yeah, he's going bald. Because that supposedly masks steroids. I don't know why a goalie needed steroids. But, but yeah, Von Miller, uh, it's a big blow to the Broncos, who I believe are the odds-on favorite to win the Super Bowl if you go by Vegas' numbers. And uh, Quarter of the season. Yep, quarter of the season, and they start week one against Baltimore. So it's not going to be easy right away. Not good, especially if it's something stupid like, like marijuana or something. I, I'm not going to harp on that, but if you're a football player, just give it up for your career and then go back to smoking all the dope you want when you're a retired millionaire. Right. Yeah. Not good. All right. Interesting week for the worldwide leader ESPN. Yeah. A couple of additions and a subtraction. First announcement was that Keith Olbermann has returned to ESPN and there's been some rumors floating around that he's going to do sports center 
in the middle of August, which happens to be the same week that Fox Sports 1 is debuting. Okay. Uh, so maybe a little bit of a way for ESPN to deflect some of the attention from Fox Sports 1 debut back to ESPN. But Keith Overman's going to be back, and he's going to have a show that's supposedly not going to be political. Uh, this is going to be some kind of yeah, that's what I was gonna sports ask. Sports show. I mean, a lot of people tend to forget. Like some people are going to love this, and some people are going to just hate it, just because they associate Olbermann now as a leftist, uh, liberal, or whatever. Uh, a lot of people forget that he was one of the original goofball anchors, along with like Craig Kilborn on SportsCenter, and Dan Patrick. probably in ESPN's prime, at least what I would consider its prime. Uh, do you think that comes out at all? Do you think he's we were we talked off the air that ESPN seems to like and Richard Deitch beat them up for this. They like controversy for the sense of controversy. They got Stephen A. Smith, Skip Bayless, uh, Colin Coward. Is is Olbermann going to say controversial things, or is he just going to be the goofy Sports Center anchor? He He'll wants? probably say controversial things. That, that's his persona now, right? It's yeah, it seems like it. And to add to that, and. They've also hired Nate Silver from the um, his popular blog. The uh, is it five eight three? Is that right? Let me get this right for sure. Um, so Nate Silver is leaving wherever he's leaving, and his five thirty eight blog is going to now be a part of the ESPN umbrella of things. Silver, of course, is the famous statistician who, pretty much down to the vote, was able to predict the last couple of oh, okay. elections. And he is going to make regular appearances on this non-political Keith Oberman show. Okay. So two guys known for politics are moving to ESPN to do sports stuff. And Nate Silver is known for sports as well. He's a famous sabermetrician, um, a writer. So it'll be interesting to see. I love that stuff. So hopefully it is just he's there to be the numbers guy, kind of like the scorecasting and all that type of stuff we've read. Right. And then... So they add those things, and then they lose the NASCAR contract this week, which goes over to NBC Sports, who seems to be building their empire on the popular niche sports like hockey, hockey right. and, and NASCAR. So interesting to see how ESPN's kind of maneuvering itself here and the way they choose to spend money. We had a story not too long ago about them cutting ties with uh, Howie Schwab from Stump the Schwab, Schwab yeah. and that got some really negative press for ESPN. So they didn't have money for him, but they have uh, presumably lots of dollars to spend on Nate Silver and Keith, Keith Oberman, right. but didn't want to invest the money needed for NASCAR. And the most interesting thing will be, well, now what kind of presence does NASCAR have on SportsCenter? Yeah, Probably I'm going to guess diminished. very little, yeah. right. My last thing this week, Manti Teo is in the news, and not for anything negative. Uh, he has the top-selling rookie jersey, and my thought to you is gut reaction. Why? Is it the, the first pick was a lineman? That's what that's I was going to say. It. Is it the unsexy draft yep, class? That's are, part of it are for sure. Over the fake girlfriend thing. That helped, I bet. The I fake bet. girlfriend thing helped. Yeah, I think people are buying it as a joke. I think people are not looking at it as a lie, but looking at it as this dude got catfished. Yeah, and he's just kind of a goofball now. To yeah, and I think he's probably appealed to people who like the show and the movie. <laughs> you know, I I don't know if that's it as much as he's a huge name. He went to Notre Dame. Yeah, it could be just Notre Dame fans. The Notre Dame people are not about to turn their back on him. It doesn't seem like. How do you think he's going to be received the first time he goes on the field, at home and away? I guess 
At home, I think it's going to be you're our guy. We're ready to get behind you. All out. Pull for him, Big right. pop, big cheer on the road. It's going to be let's razz this guy. Right. This yeah, that's a, about right. Yeah, this is a guy we can get on. And on the road, he's always going to be the catfish, dude. Yep. That's what he'll always be. But number one selling jersey right now uh, over the offensive lineman whose names I've already forgotten. <laughs> is, do you have any other? Like, do you have a top three or a top five? I don't. No, no, I don't. Well, you look for that because I'm curious to see what we got there. Maybe I can try to guess a couple. That My number three story is Sports Illustrated and Peter King have launched the Monday Morning Quarterback website. It's mmqb.si.com or themmqb.com. Really cool website, something we've been looking forward to for a while now. Peter King is obviously the main man over there. It's sort of his Grantland. Peter King is to the Monday Morning QB as Bill Simmons is to Grantland. Uh, the Morning mo- Monday Morning QB is to SI as Grantland is to ESPN. Right. And uh, they have hired three full-time writers to be a part of this. One of them is a guy named Greg Bedard, who is going to be on the podcast as soon as we're done with this segment. Uh, also, they have two other full-time writers, uh, guys like Richard Deitch and Jim Trotter, people who, Don Banks, people who we know from outside but on this show are also going to be contributors on the site, as is the always controversial uh, DB from Seattle, Sherman, oh. is uh, going to be uh, writing for them. And uh, all kinds of interesting stuff there. So the Monday Morning QB, and we're going to talk more about that with Greg Bedard in a few minutes. You know what? Uh, we talked earlier about NBC Sports getting kind of bigger with NASCAR, and that's great. Competition's always good for that, and I feel the same way about the Monday Morning Quarterback site. If it's anything like Grantland, which is great, uh, good. The more sites out there like that, the better. I was able to find the top five top rookies, five rookies and top five regular jerseys. Top so okay, top five regular. Did I hear Robert Griffin the third is number one? Colin Kaepernick is number one. Wow. Okay. Wow. I'm surprised. Griffin the third is number three. Griffin the third is number three. Peyton Manning number two. Number five. Number five. If these are in order, they gave the list of five guys. Okay. So so far that's three QBs. Let's see. Manning, Kaepernick. I'm gonna say Wilson isn't in there, although he would follow the trend of Aaron Rodgers. No, Russell Wilson is number two. Oh, is he really? Wow. Okay. Well, that follows the trend. Then the last and one. Andrew Luck is the other one. No, the last one's a non-quarterback. Non-quarterback. Adrian Peterson. Correct. Those are the top five selling jerseys: Kaepernick, Wilson, Griffin the third, Peterson, and Manning. So we gave you Tao. Who do you think is the second highest selling rookie jersey? Oh man, it's so after tough. seeing it. It seems almost like a no-brainer a little bit. He was a real popular guy at the draft. Uh, everyone kind of, He was kind of a sexy pick. Sexy pick. Geno Smith? No, no. More coveted than that. More coveted than Geno Smith. Sexy everyone pick. thought he might go to the Jets. Uh, is Tavon, Tavon yeah. Austin one? Tavon Austin. Okay. He ended up going to the Rams. Believe, he ended up right? going to the Rams. He's the eighth pick, I believe. Okay, so we got... Teo, Tavon, Tavon. Um, I'm guessing that Eric Fisher and Luke Jockel are not in there, right? There's no, not a rush no. to get offensive jerseys. tackle jerseys. No. Um, Deion Jordan, maybe one with the Dolphins. Nope. No. Uh, wow, this is going to be tough because I bet they're not going to be first rounders. The other two are no. The second one, I'll give you their positions. There's a quarterback. Is EJ Manuel one. EJ Manuel is three. Okay, so. 
EJ Manuel. I believe this guy's a wide receiver. I should know this. He's got a long name. <laughs> a long name. I, I don't know. Corderell Patterson. Okay. And the last one is a running back. Lacey? Yep. Yeah, so not a sexy jersey or rookie draft class, especially. We said this, though, on the podcast before. When you're drafting all big, fat linemen, you're not. it's not going to be the most exciting draft. The ever. Vikings are selling some jerseys, huh? They had someone on both lists. Are they the only team with someone on both lists with Patterson and Peterson? Eddie Lacey went to Green Bay, right? Right. And Rodgers wasn't on there. One. Bills didn't have one. Austin Redskins went to... didn't have nope. one. Rams yeah. didn't have one. So the Vikings moving some jerseys. Yeah, I guess they're, they'll be a fun team. I don't expect them to be better than last year, but they'll be fun. We talked about this recently. If you were going to buy a jersey for next year, who would you buy? Because Mrs. Castor was looking for a jersey. I would say CJ Spiller. Spiller. That's probably Same where I would you. go to. Uh, maybe Stefan Gilmore as a Bills fan. Now, maybe. if the Mrs. buys a Spiller jersey, does that make you not want to buy one? Or you want to be uh, that couple rolling up to the Bills party with maybe, matching Spiller jerseys? Maybe I go EJ Manuel. You know, that's the type of one that if it works, it's an investment. You know what I mean? Or I'll just be that guy with a J.P. Lossman jersey on a few years down the road. Never dies, right? Or uh, Kiko Alonso, who I don't know next to nothing about, but is supposed to be the Bills' key to their defense this year. So I'll have to learn something about him. I would probably get Graham. That'll probably be my next Saints jersey, Jimmy Graham. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why you don't have one at all? I don't or? have one yet, so wow, that'll probably yeah. be my next jersey. It'd have to be, sure. Yeah, it would. All right, we are going to do this. We got Greg Bedard, we got Damon Hack, we got Stephen Hyden. Let's get it started with Greg Bedard from the Monday Morning Quarterback. Our next guest is from Massachusetts and is a graduate of Rutgers. He has covered the National Football League as a beat writer for the Packers, Dolphins, and Patriots. He was a National Football columnist for the Boston Globe and today is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. Yesterday, his first column for the Monday Morning Quarterback debuted. He is making his first appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to the very talented Greg Bedard. You're still there, right? I am still here. <laughs> Thanks right. for having me. Good. I was a little worried maybe you uh, hung up when you... When I botched the, uh, it, I probably shouldn't have said anything because I could have got away with only Mr. Bedard knowing about it. But I totally you botched. Could've. Yeah, I totally botched the open. And when I was reading it the second time, I'm like, I hope he didn't hang up because he thought he was dealing with uh, amateurs. But thanks for, thank you very much for doing this on only the second day of what is really a, a great project uh, started by Peter King, the Monday Morning Quarterback. It's the morning, the Monday Morning Quarterback dot com, uh, part of Sports Illustrated, but separate, maybe as a comparison similar to what. ESPN did with Grantland, where it's part of ESPN.com, but separate and uh, a different entity. Let's start off just, I'm curious, what made you interested specifically in this this project, and, and how did it come about that you were one of the three staff writers that were hired to be a part of it? Well, I mean, really you start with two things. You start with the Sports Illustrated name and the quality of work that they do, and then also Peter King, who is you know the most read NFL writer of our time, and so you know in that regard it was pretty much a no-brainer. But Peter approached me uh, sometime around Thanksgiving last year, just kind of he was kind of kicking around thoughts. His his contract at Sports Illustrated was about to come up, and he wasn't sure what to do next, and he had this idea and asked if I was interested because he said he he only wanted to do it if he could get the people that he wanted to do it. 
uh, with him. And he said that I was the first person that he was going after, which, you know, obviously was, uh, great, to, great to hear. And then it slowly evolved from there. It kind of really picked up steam, I'd say around the Super Bowl, And, um, from there was just kind of a no brainer. I mean, for me, you know, looking at the next step of my career, if there was even going to be one, because when I came from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel to the Packers, uh, from the Packers to the Globe, I mean, I was coming home, I was going to the Boston Globe, I'm from here, I love the Globe, um, I thought, you know, I could be, you know, Will McDonough and right. stay there the so rest like... of my career and mix in some TV here and there, if need be, but, uh, you know, if I was going to go national, uh, I wanted to do, I wanted to continue to do the work that I like, which is really analyzing film, breaking things down, writing about the game itself, and not getting into some of the, you know, BS that kind of dominates the day-to-day stuff. And and I thought that uh, there were very few outlets who were, who were going to give me that opportunity, and Sports Illustrated was one of them. So for me, in many ways, this was uh, a perfect marriage. You know, I was doing, I was looking around, doing a little bit of research about, you know, I'd have you on the show, and one thing that I noticed was that there's so many writers who have emerged from the Globe and the Herald and the Boston area that have went on to cover the league in a more national sense in really only a handful of years, and I wonder if that just speaks to the quality of the the coverage in the Boston area. If you think it's that, and also the chance for the writers there, given that they're covering the Patriots, one of the higher profile teams in the league that maybe there, there's a little bit more of an awareness of what's going on locally there. I mean, it's, you know, tons of guys, Albert Breer and Ian Rappaport are at the NFL network, yep. Adam Kilgore, Mike Reese. I mean, tons of guys, uh, Christopher Gasper who have emerged from this area. And I wonder just what you thought about that. Well, I think that, um, I think that without a doubt, the, Boston sports media market and also the Patriots give you the kind of visibility that you wouldn't get elsewhere, which I guess makes you more attractive. Not that I necessarily agree with that, but, you know, and and I know that there are people who, you know, use, who, who see that and want to get here and use it as a springboard for other things, including some of the people that you mentioned. But, you know, for me, I was a little bit different. I'm, uh, um, you know, I'm a little bit older than some of those guys. Uh, I have a family, I, uh, which is very important to me. And really, you know, I, when I look at a job, I need to balance family and work. I'm not looking for, I'm not necessarily working for, looking for the biggest paycheck. Um, you know, which almost always is in TV. Really, what I want, what I'm looking at is. I want to be able to do a good job. I want to be able to do the type of work that I want to do, and but also not kill myself doing it. Be able to be a father and be able to be a husband, and have that kind of time, that valuable time when my kids are now, you know, six years old. Um, So, you know, for for many people, I think this market is is a definite, and the Patriots are a springboard to other things. But for other people. Um, that's not really, uh, you know, the goal or the objective. Were you worried at all with your first story being about the Patriots introducing yourself to a national audience? Were you worried at all that you might get labeled as, oh, this guy's from the Boston area and here he is writing about the Patriots and I'm tired of the Patriots. Were you worried about that at all or was it almost the opposite of 
so many people are interested in this team and the things that happen with this team and Belichick and the way things have gone this summer, it's the perfect springboard for me to be able to write something I've been so close to. Yeah, I mean, that was actually kind of accidental. That story is actually the last one that I wrote. I actually wrote it, I finished it Friday afternoon when I've been working on stuff. I mean, basically I started working um, for the site and the magazine in sometime in May. And, of course, you got to find time before everybody goes on vacation in the middle of June, including myself, to get work done. So, you know, I've been working on some other things, so... It looked like for the launch of the site that I was going to do something that, uh, you know, kind of told everybody who I was nationally about, you know, I, w- I would do some sort of analysis piece on, you know, whether it's the Packers and their decision to go with Brian Bulaga at left tackle and what that can mean. Is that a good or a bad move? Watch film, break it down. Uh, and then there are other stories that I have in the can, like on Friday, Friday for the site, we're going to have a, a, a kind of like a spotlight piece. It's called Going Long, where it's a, it's a long kind of think piece. And, and on Friday, we're going to have um, my take on the read option and the defensive counter to that. And I went out to Stanford and spent time with Derek Mason, the defensive coordinator. And, uh, you know, I did a story, I think it will appear tomorrow where, or possibly later today, where I watched game film with Torrey Smith of the Ravens. Um, so the Patriots thing really came kind of last minute. A few things fell through. We felt we had needed to address the Hernandez thing um, early. I obviously, I just thought, yeah, yeah. Some people, and I got some sort of that feedback, like, oh, well, you know, Greg's writing about the Patriots. But look, I know the Patriots well. I know the, you know, how they're going to react to that. So I thought, you know, who better than to write? A take on that and you know like to it was nice today i got a phone call from from uh from a patriots insider who knows the inner workings of the building and he, and he called me today and he said you nailed it so you know that's always good to hear but i i, I was fine with it i never i never had a thought like man i don't want to write about the patriots i write about the patriots all the time i just thought it was a natural fit i could lend insight that uh other people couldn't as a writer do you feel like this is such a great opportunity for me. I'm so happy to be moving on. But, wow, what a tough year to not be around the Patriots. You know, we're going to have this whole circus around Tebow and Hernandez and all the things that are going on with them, having lost another AFC championship, not one ring. Or is it like, you know what, I'm kind of glad to be away from that and be able to focus on the league a little bit more. I would have been fine either way. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I would have... Um, I would have been fine analyzing this team, you know, going out to training camp like I do every day and writing monstrous training camp reports about who's doing well and who's doing not well and who won one-on-ones today on the offensive and defensive line. And then, um, you know, watching the film. I would have been fine with that. But I'm also fine being a little bit detached from it and uh, being able to pick and choose my spots a little bit more. Um, so, I mean, it's it. see, the thing is, is, Every year with the Patriots is an interesting year. I mean, yeah, there's other. There's. It seems like there's more stuff going on right now, but um, that team always has something going on, and and so it's it's always interesting to be around them. And you know, luckily I'm still living in the Boston area, and I'll be able to shoot down to Gillette whenever I need to. And so uh, I'm somewhat close to it still. You know, I think there's. It's really easy to just assume that since you wrote for a newspaper in Boston that you were a Patriots beat writer, but you weren't per se, right? You did cover the league as a whole as well which is what you'll be doing here. 
as we enter training camp this year, are there certain kind of storylines that you're really interested in, in pursuing, seeing how they play out in the next month and a half before we get into the season? Not really. I mean, we kind of have our uh, like list of teams that we need to do certain things for for the magazine season preview issue for the site. I'll be going on Peter King's um, RV um, starting August 6th for about a week, and I'll see certain teams. So, I mean, there's not really anything on my um, checklist right now. I mean, you're right in pointing out that um, I wasn't really a Patriots beat writer, but I kind of crafted it. So I, I wasn't involved in the beat, and I wasn't a huge national guy. I tried to work inside out, but I, I, I just basically tried to be a Patriots columnist. So, you know, the truth of the matter is, is I actually have some catching up to do as far as film work on the rest of the NFL because um, I thought that it was most important for my readers at the Boston Globe that I focus on the Patriots and then, and then kind of branch out from there. So I, I have a little catching up to do. What do you think about the Broncos and the offseason that they've had? They've obviously had some issues with uh, DUI in the front office that they've handled now with some suspensions. And now word came out yesterday, Von Miller's going to be missing the first four games. It seems like there's been a lot of turmoil there. What do you think about the Broncos as they enter their second year with Peyton Manning here? Well, I mean, it has been interesting. I mean, people will look at the front office stuff, but... Um... Really, that you know, when you look at what affects the team, maybe it affects the perception of the Broncos. But as far as the team itself, which is really what matters, that's not going to affect them very much. I mean, those personnel guys, um, you know, are not a huge day-to-day factor in, in in what they do. I think the the Von Miller possible suspension uh, looms much lar- larger than again him missing four games to start the season is not a season killer. Uh, people will make it out like that and kind of drum up the drama, but uh, as long as he's back, they should be okay. I, I just think the the overriding thing is um, I th- I think that defense was going to progress. I think that Peyton Manning's arm strength was not great last year. I was not on the Peyton Manning is you know possible MVP candidate. I was not on that bandwagon. Um, I think it'll be better this year. I think Welker will help him, but I think ultimately that. Whether that defense is any better is going to determine whether the Broncos are a regular season one playoff game and out team like they were last year, or can they really contend for a Super Bowl and and uh, not having Elvis Doomerville and reworking the secondary. Those are the questions that I think are really going to um, address whether the Broncos are in there at the end or not. Sportscasters are here with Greg Bedard, who you can find on Twitter at Greg A. B-E-D-A-R-D. He's also one of the new staff writers for the Monday Morning Quarterback.com, MMQB.com, uh, over at Sports Illustrated. You know, we kind of we've been jumping around here talking about the site, talking about your background, talking about some NFL related things. As far as people who are just kind of going to the site and, and getting ready, there's so many ways to follow football these days. I mean, there's the TV mm-hmm. side, the internet, there's, you know, small sites like Football Nation, big sites like Sports Illustrated. What is it about the Monday morning quarterback that you guys think will kind of be your wheelhouse, your niche? What will it make football fans want to come back to that site over and over to get their football news? Well, there's a couple things. I think that um, one interesting schematic thing that we're doing is um, it wasn't there the first day just because it was the first day, but if you go there now to the MMQB.com, you know, you'll see um, right at the bottom of the first page, you'll see kind of like a, 
upcoming, what's going to be published to the site. So we're going to be, uh, at least for the first couple weeks and, and probably, you know, all season, we're going to, you know, every two to four hours, we're going to have something new posting. Um, so I think, I think people will, will like that. But you know, the most important thing is the co- content. And uh, I think you're right. There's, there's a ton of NFL coverage. I mean, it's the, it's the most popular sport in this country and you can go anywhere and get and get NFL coverage but what I think we're going to do better than most people is consistently bringing you in-depth behind the scenes kind of stories about the people the coaches uh, the game itself than other people have I mean you might see that once in a while from you know once a week from a magazine or or a website but we're going to try to do that every day and in everything that we do we're pretty much looking at ourselves we like to think of ourselves as kind of a thinking a thinking man's guide to 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 football and uh, I think it's the the people that are that are going to like it are um, you know they like the game uh, they really like the game, but they don't really know the game, and they don't really understand the game, and they don't understand what makes people tick in the game. And I think those are the stories that we're going to do, and I think it's going to enhance uh, those fans, their ability to enjoy the game more uh, and the NFL itself. And, and so that's what we're looking to do. We know that every week on Monday we're going to be able to go to this site and read Peter King's Monday Morning Quarterback yep. column, kind of like his go-to, maybe even the flagship column for the site. Are you going to have a certain column that's going to reoccur week after week that we can look for? Or are you going to focus more on the stories that will change from week to week, obviously? It looks like it. Um, I think that uh, the other two full-time writers, Jenny, uh, Jenny Vrentis from the Star-Ledger, who's um, terrific, Robert Klumpko from USA Today, who's um, terrific. They're both young, energetic. They have great ideas. I mean, they think of stuff that... Um, I, you know, I'm only, I'm only 39, but I, I, I feel like a curmudgeon next to these two kids. Like, um, I think they're going to be a little bit more on the fly that, you know, Hey, we're going to have a, uh, a story meeting each week and, and Hey, let's do this story. And they're kind of young and single and can go get things. I'm going to be, it looks like, and this is still fluid. Um, we'll have to see, but it looks like I am going to, at least on Mondays, Tuesdays and Fridays, probably Wednesday also, I'm going to be pretty anchored in. Like, I don't think I'm going to be going to many games on Sunday. I think I'm going to be turning analysis around for the 5 o'clock spot on Monday on the uh, on the site, kind of breaking down X's and O's, talking to some people around the league about uh, some of the biggest plays from Sunday. And I think, I think fans will really like that. And then I'll come back on Tuesday with uh, kind of like a new schematic thing that we hadn't seen before um, uh, from Sunday's game and do a little bit more in-depth on that for 5 o'clock. And then we're still, it looks like I'm going to revive my Sunday notes column that I used to do for the Globe for Friday afternoon um, for the site. I might do it a little bit differently. I think I'm going to focus more on um, my my game film review and, and stuff that I still have left over in my notebook. Um but I think I think that's what we're going to do for right now. So, uh, but I'll still have the ability to to you know go and do interesting stories if I can uh, if I have to do that. Well, I can tell you that just by listening to you, I can hear the excitement and enthusiasm that's surrounding this site right in your voice, and it's got me pumped up to keep clicking back and. 
back again and again. So thank you very much for taking the time out to do this again. It's at Greg A B E D A R D on Twitter. It's the MMQB.com or MMQB.si.com uh, to find the site. Anything else uh, you wanted to let our listeners know before we let you go? No, Steve. I mean, it's just, um, you know, I think people have gotten a taste. Uh, what I want to emphasize is that people got a taste of what the site is going to be from Monday and today, Tuesday, uh, you know, a variety of stuff. Um, but there's still more to come. And I think uh, what I'm hoping and then what I'm, some of the feedback I'm getting on Twitter is that people are like, you know, this, there's a variety of stuff and they keep on surprising me. So I want to keep going back to the site and that's what we want. And I think people, even as we get into the season, I think people are going to find good, interesting stuff on the NFL that they're like, you know what, I want to, I want to go over to the MMQB.com and, and check out and see uh, what they're doing. So, um, so far, so good, but uh, I just want to say there's, there's more to come. Really cool use of video so far, I thought, too. I've liked, yes. Yeah, I've liked the mix-in and the video, which has been really nice. You know, you click on something, you think it might be 15 minutes of reading another story, but really it turns out just be a couple minutes of video, and that, that's nice sometimes to break it up. But Yeah, yeah, Peter's big on that. I'm still a little dubious about how much people like video, but, you know, from what we're hearing, young people like yourself, they want to watch video. And uh, so, you know, we're going to give it to them. We're trying to think of ways to tell stories with videos. Um, you know, even, even, uh, sort of, you'll see us do a few real sports type stories and, and things like that. So we're just trying to, trying to do interesting stories in interesting ways that people haven't really done it with the NFL and, and, uh, hopefully we can keep coming up with good ideas. Thank you so much for doing this today. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me, Steve. Thank you. All right, I want to thank Greg Bedard from TheMondayMorningQuarterback.com for being on the podcast today. I'm excited about this site. I'm excited, like you said, the more good content there is out there about football, the better it is for football fans, and we're definitely football fans. Right, absolutely. And we're big fans of SI and a lot of the guys who write for SI and work for SI, so I'm excited that they have a, another platform, and it's great that the first week of this site we were able to get one of the – there's basically only four main – component you know four main writers and we got one of the four the day after it debuted so i'm excited about that book club update the book club book of the month this month kind of picking up where we left off before break with the alex papadimus interview which kind of focused not on sports but on culture and the death of james gandolfini and on the sopranos he mentioned in that interview a former colleague of his named brett martin was putting out a book called difficult men and i reached out to brett who initially turned me down and said he was too busy uh, with media. And I kind of went back to him. I said, listen, I totally respect that, but I hope I was clear on how I presented it. And we're not asking for much other than a 15 or 20 minute phone spot right? and one book. And he agreed to do it. Hopefully I wasn't because I was twisting his arm <laughs> and he directed me to the publisher who was super on board And not only sent me a copy of the book, but said she would make a copy or two of the book available to listeners. listeners. So we're going to have a giveaway this month. Again, the book is Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution, From the Sopranos and the Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And basically what this book is, is the story of the anti-hero that has emerged in the cable television drama. 
uh, basically with the start of Tony Soprano and The Sopranos. And it's a really oh, okay. cool book so far. Obviously, there's characters like Dexter in here. Uh, Breaking the, Bad, Walter. Right, or Walter White. Yeah. And, you know, all kinds of guys. It's got some really interesting timelines and graphs and what happened to shows. A really interesting story right off the top about how difficult Gandolfini became to deal with in the filming of The Sopranos and how they had this big area in New York kind of reserved and he just kind of bailed and didn't show up. Really? Yeah, and they had to uh, had to shoot without him. So the way this works basically is we promote this book every show for a couple weeks. Uh, we read it, Don mostly. Uh, <laughs> I read it a bit. And then uh, we get the author on here in a couple weeks and we talk to him about it. We take questions from you and uh, hopefully turn you on to something that you want to check out. So, again, it's Difficult Men. Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution from The Sopranos and The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. That's by Brett Martin. Available for the Nook, the Kindle, iBooks, and Amazon.com and bookstores near you. We are going to be right back with our good buddy, Damon Hack. Our next guest is from Los Angeles, California, and is a graduate of UCLA. He then went on to UC Berkeley, where he earned a master's degree in journalism. Professionally, he has covered the San Francisco 49ers for the Sacramento Bee and the New York Knicks for Newsday. He then moved on to cover golf and the NFL for the New York Times. He spent the last several years as a senior writer for Sports Illustrated covering golf in the National Football League, until today where he covers golf on television for the Golf Channel. He's making his seventh appearance on the Sportscasters and his first in a while. A warm welcome to the very talented and kind Damon Hack. How are you doing today, Damon? Steve, I'm doing great. I can't believe it's been this long since we've talked. I'm glad this is my seventh appearance on this show. I've always enjoyed talking to you through my various stops now uh, in the world of television. Yeah, we love having you on. You're one of our favorites as well. You're one of the guys we always tell Richard Deitch, who always wants to know from us who our who our favorites are. You're always near the top of that list. And it's been a while, but that's mostly my fault since I went into, uh, we, I don't know. I don't even know if we, we told you this, but we were off almost the whole winter. Cause I was, I was down and out in the hospital there because of the Crohn's disease, but we're, I do uh, remember that. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling great. Doing really good. And it's been an exciting couple of weeks uh, for us with this kind of Twitter thing that's taken over here. Uh, with the pictures, I don't know if you saw that, with all the, the best moment pictures that Richard Deitch and I have kind of got going on Twitter there. I'll have to check that out. I haven't seen that. Yeah, so we got to get you to get a picture uh, with the boys probably would be one of the best moments of your life. That's kind of the thing, like, best moment of your life or one of them, do you have a picture of it? And I was lucky to have one from when my brother won the national championship uh, at Yale this, uh, this spring, and uh, we've gotten some really great photos back, and I was thinking you probably have one of... Uh, or the boys, or something like that. That um, that would be that would be good. Yeah, the best moment was, was, was of my life. It probably happens every day that I'm around my boys and my wife. That you know, as you know, family's so important. So I, I would love to contribute a picture, and you can bet that uh, family will be a part of it. Yeah, no doubt. So probably I was I was thinking this kind of related that Phil probably has a picture now. One of the best moments of his life that kind of group hug that he got at at the uh at the at the open this weekend someone got a great picture of it 
just of his family and his girls all kind of huddled around, real great group hug. And, and I don't know, this Phil Mickelson guy, man, is he just easy to root for, you know? He is compelling. He is must-watch TV. And over the years, I've been lucky enough to cover him. First, before he even won a major championship, I met Phil back in 2001 at the Atlanta Athletic Club at the PGA Championship, and David Toms got up and down to beat him in the same manner that Payne Stewart had got up and down to beat him at Pinehurst in 1999. And see, 12 years later, to go from no majors to five major championships in the era of maybe the most dominant golfer of all time in Tiger Woods. You know, Phil's reinvented himself many times. The swing coach was Rick Smith. He won three majors with him. He's won two majors now with Butch Harmon. He's gone from hating Lynx golf to appreciating the, you know, the vagaries and the, the luck involved, the good bounces and bad bounces. And to see him go back-to-back winning back the Scottish Open and the British Open, having Amy and the kids there, having Butch there, waiting for him off the 18th green. At 43 years of age, Phil Mickelson continues to find ways to be jazzed and excited and feels like he still has a lot to do, and now he sits on the doorstep of winning the career Grand Slam, and wouldn't it be something that would happen in June at Pinehurst, the same place where Payne Stewart denied him of winning the U.S. Open, gosh, 14 years ago, but also held his hand in his, in his face and said, listen, you know, Phil, there's nothing better than being a father. You're about to become a father, which, of course, Phil Nicholson did the very next day in 1999. His daughter Amanda was born, and, of course, Amanda was there on Sunday with the family at Muirfield. So, so many neat little uh, connections and symmetry in the game of golf, and Phil Mickelson's riding one of those highs right now. Last to ask you with, about Phil, and you kind of touched on it. There was a big theme this weekend from Phil himself and a lot of the people who cover golf about how this always seemed like it would be the hardest one for him to win. The Lynx style of golf has always been something he struggled with. What is it about his game, the evolution of his game to the point it's at now, that has allowed him to, as you said, win two tournaments in a row and win the British Open? I think it ultimately came down to the challenge, Stephen. This is a player who was pretty hard-headed and stubborn early in his career, liked to hit the ball a long way, hit it high in the sky, and that's exactly what Lynx golf is not about. It's a ground game. It's hitting the ball low, keeping it out of the wind, not letting the crosswinds of a golf hole affect your shot. And, and Phil Mickelson early on hated it to the point where he put it below the Masters, the U.S. Open, the PGA, and the Players' Championship. He thought it was the fifth most important tournament in the world instead of the first, second, or third, or fourth, which a lot of people think it is one of the, you know, it's the oldest major championship. It's the one that the Europeans and, and, and the South Africans and the Australians probably want to win more than any. It is the true world open, and Phil Middleton did not enjoy that kind of game. And, and Butch Harmon is his teacher, finally kind of put in his head to listen, I think he's the most creative player of, of all time. It's, it's remarkable how the most creative player of all time continues to struggle on these Lynx golf courses. I think Phil took it as a challenge. They worked on his game. They lowered his ball flight. He added some loft to his driver to the point where he doesn't even hit a driver right now. He's hitting a three-wood, so that's definitely keeping the, 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 the high rough and some of the bunkers out of play. He's found comfort pounding the fairways, as we saw at Miracle. He was playing out of the fairways and rarely playing out of the fescue grasses. And he, he kind of just is not swinging out of his shoes anymore and not so enamored with distance, which he often has been in, in He's swinging beautifully and in balance and just kind of really embraced the whole challenge and the beauty of Lynx golf. And I think you saw him going back-to-back weeks on two Scottish golf courses, two Lynx-style golf courses, including Muirfield, maybe the most challenging and beautiful of all the Lynx golf courses in the U.K. For him to win a Claret Jug at that golf course just tells you 
how far his game had come from being someone who didn't even like Link's golf to someone who, you know, kind of humbled himself and said, listen, I'm going to do what it takes to, to win this tournament, win this championship, and that's exactly what he did. When you woke up on Sunday, was he a guy you had in mind as someone you thought could win that day? I mean, where was he? Because, I mean, to he had just come off a, a plus three and a plus one on Friday and Saturday after a, a good first round and minus two. Was this something you thought? Was this Where was this in your mind, if at all? Yeah, this was not possible for me, considering he was five shots out of the lead. That's not an impossible deficit, but the names that were above him, Lee Westwood, you know, 40 years old, trying to win his first major. Adam Scott was ahead of him. Tiger Woods was ahead of him. Hunter Mahan was ahead of him. These are good players. These are the cream of the crop. Zach Johnson, a major champion, was ahead of him. And I just thought that still, you know, we kind of scuffled on Friday and Saturday and had some opportunities and didn't get it done um, on those two days to make a move. And I just said, you know what, this feels like it'll be a big name will win this, so it'll be Stenson the big Swede winning his first major championship or Zach winning his second or Tiger Woods. Remember that guy? I, I thought he was in a great position to win his 15th major championship. But instead, well, those guys were stalling and really kind of really holding on to that steering wheel tight on the back nine on Sunday. Still made this incredible move, four birdies in his final six holes, a great up and down par save on 16. And he boat raced the field in that last half and that last, uh, you know, hour, hour and a half. It was remarkable to watch. You could just see him, thriving and, and it's amazing that a player that blew the u.s open a month earlier gets off the mat that's what phil does and was able to win that fifth major in that first third job i don't know about you you mentioned that guy that were that you, you kind of joked that remember him tiger woods it felt to me like sunday was going to be his day the way saturday played out with the field kind of coming back to him a bit after his round was over it seemed like his round ended and then every time i looked his name got closer and closer to the to the top it just felt like, wow, this seems to be playing out for him. He's going to go out there on Sunday, and he's going to do what he's done, not even years ago, but the way he started this year, the way he was winning tournaments, the way he was finishing people off before we got into the majors. It just felt like this was going to be his day, but right now it's just not happening for him. It's really not, and it's remarkable that a player who won four tournaments in 2013, a player who has 14 major championships, has suddenly not remembered how to win on Sundays on a major championship stage. It's been over five years now since his last major championship. And listen, we, we can all see the, the steps that Tiger has taken. He, he's clearly, at, at least as far as winning tournaments, past the scandal, past the, the injuries. But it shows how mental the major championships are and how maybe there's some self-doubt in there. We've talked about it on Golf Channel's Morning Drive show that there still seems to be something missing on Sundays, a lack of comfort, a lack of total focus. That was what made Tiger so incredible, the mental toughness that he displayed on Sundays. Other players would make some mistakes and fall all over themselves, and Tiger would just, you know, make the pars that he needed, make a birdie if necessary, and shoot the required score. And that's not happening right now. He's gripping the putter too tight. He's coming up short on his putts, and he just gets so frustrated right now on Sundays. I think it shows us that, he really, really wants to break through and maybe wants to win it too much. I mean, he's the one that's chasing history now. He's the one that's chasing Jack Nicklaus's mark. He's the only one that's in the running right now to be the greatest golfer of all time. And I think we're seeing that burden show itself on Sundays where he used to thrive in those situations. And right now, he's not there yet. It doesn't mean he's not going to win a major again. I think he will win a major. And once he gets that 15th major, look out. But at this point, until he wins that 15th elusive major, these struggles are going to be really glaring to watch. 
you know, I think we're past the point where every time Tiger plays a good round, we have to rush and say, oh, Tiger's back. But Tiger himself, a long time ago, made it only about majors for him. You know, and I'm willing to acknowledge he's had a great year, you know, with the four tournaments that he's won in 2013. And he's played some some really great golf. And I've seen uh, a difference in him at times. But he is. He's the one who's made it. It's all about majors for him. And it's all about passing Jack. I mean, that's what his career is at this point. It doesn't matter how many more uh, tournaments that he wins uh, that aren't majors, in my opinion. And, and you can disagree if, if you if you like. I wouldn't disrespect that opinion. But do you sometimes think, you know, obviously he had a, a crazy change in his life, a crazy change in the perception that people have of him. All kinds of things are different. But I wonder if the thing that's missing the most from him maybe is, is his father and, and someone maybe even if it's not his father, but someone who's able to, to kind of talk to him in a way that nobody else can. And if it's not that, what do you think it is that, that's kind of holding him back right now? That, besides just the things like, obviously, he's not putting well. Yeah, I do think that. I think that there's a theory that's going around right now that his father was his biggest sounding board, not only you know with putting, he was actually his putting coach, and his only putting coach was his father, who would watch a broadcast or be on the, the golf course and, and, and almost immediately be able to diagnose his son's woes. But even bigger than that, his father was, was his mentor. He was his everything. You know, we saw when Earl passed away uh, during the, um, the summer or spring of 2006, and, you know, Tiger came back and missed the cut at wing split, and he goes out and wins the British Open at Hoy Lake in the summer of 06. And the emotion, the tears, I mean, th- these two were exceedingly close. They, they, were, they, were, they were father and son, but they were best friends. They're almost a lot more like brothers than father and son, just so, so close. And, and, and Tiger has missed her all. And he will tell you as much of that, that that's a deficit that he's been dealing with. But, but I tell you, I still think it's, it's just the doubt. It's, there's a self doubt. There's something that was so ironclad that Tiger had in his, in his being. And there was also the belief of the other players. They all knew that Tiger was the best, most mentally tough golfer out there. Look what happened on Saturday. Lee Westwood played alongside Tiger Woods and played better than Tiger. Beat him by Ed Muirfield. Then on Sunday, Tiger paired with Adam Scott. Adam Scott shot a better score than Tiger Woods. These things never happened on the weekends in a major championship before. So I think it's a combination of factors. Sure, it's his father. Sure, it's his lack of, of belief right now in the majors and, and his putting woes on Sundays. He's 37 years old. You know, you don't make as many putts usually as a 37-year-old as you do as a 27-year-old. So maybe he's not, you know, he made a mile of putts in his career, hundreds of miles of putts, you know, at Torrey Pines and at the Masters and at the PGA in years past. And, there's no written rule in the status that he has to keep making putts forever. And, you know, Tom Watson struggled in his late 30s, early 40s with the yips, and Ben Hogan struggled with his putting. These guys, you know, they're, they're not machines, and we all thought that Tiger was a machine, and it took us until 2009 when Y.E. Yang beat him, first of all, and then the scandal happened, second of all, to realize this is a man that bleeds. How many has he won since he lost that? Do you know? How many majors? He's won no... How many majors has he won? Yeah, since his dad passed. He won. Uh, yeah, he won the 2006 British Open. Okay. He won the in 2007. He won the PGA, and in 2008 he won the U.S. Open. So he okay, won so three. three he's won three majors since his father passed away. Interesting. Interesting. You know when we three, three or fourteen. When we try to put things into perspective here, uh, it's something that we often do for ti- for Tiger, but it's time to start doing it for Phil. Where, where do you see him kind of fitting in um, 
historically now as he inches closer to being, what is it, five golfers at this point who have the career Grand Slam? Now he's one away from that. He's won five majors in an era, obviously, where there's another guy, by the way, who's won quite a few, as you mentioned before. Uh, Where do we start to put him into perspective, and how much is his lack of a U.S. Open and kind of the way he's lost them, kind of dramatically, uh, held, how much is that holding him back? Well, Taylor, it makes the chase for, for that U.S. Open delicious for the next five to ten okay. years. And, of course, yeah. Pinehurst next summer is going to be just an absolute, you know, media firestorm of, of, of excitement uh, when he tries to win the career grand slam. But you're right. This is a player who has had so many peaks and valleys. And, and right now, we're looking at him in a different way. He, he knocked off such an important you know, a tournament for his resume, a British Open, to win five majors. Now he's standing flat-footed with players like Seve Ballesteros won five, his hero. Uh, Byron Nelson won five major championships. Trevino and Nick Faldo won six major championships. He's right behind them. Gene Ferris and Sam Sneed won seven major championships. Arnold Palmer won seven. Tom Watson won eight. You know, Phil Mickelson is now finding himself in the same sentence and same breath with the all-time greats, with, with the legends. And what's so interesting is that he's not done yet. You know, we, we all think that Phil Mickelson, you know, barring any setbacks with his arthritis, has a nice, long, fluid swing like a Sam Sneed that's going to keep winning tournaments and producing great shots deep into his 40s and possibly into his early 50s. He's going to play Augusta National until he can't walk, and he's going to feel like he's got a shot to win that tournament and put on a green jacket again. So... I think that he has a chance before it's all said and done to win six or seven majors, maybe even eight majors. He once told me that he thinks 10 majors is a possibility in 50 golf tournaments, and he's well on his way to doing that. He's won 42 times now in his career on the PGA Tour, five major championships. It doesn't feel like this this, uh, tournament that he won in the British Open was the end. This feels more like a beginning, or at least we're in the middle chapters of, of a career that's gone from being a Hall of Fame career to possibly one of the all-time great careers, easily a top 20 career, and maybe moving into that top 10 conversation. Wow. The sportscasters are here with Damon Hack. You can find on Twitter at DamonHackGC. A couple of kind of smaller things I was wondering. What about Rory McIlroy? What have we learned? Uh, we were really quick, I think. I was guilty of it to say, wow, this is the, this is the guy. This is going to be the, the maybe new Tiger. And he, he still might be. But I'm curious to, to get your opinion on a guy who's really had a a tough, tough season. Yeah, yeah. See, we were all quick, and I was guilty of it as well, ready to annoy him, uh, the, the immediate rival of Tiger Woods. And that's what happens when you have a young player who comes up and wins two majors by eight shots apiece. I mean, we had reason to gush over Rory. He looked so confident. He hit the ball so far and so straight and had that charisma that a lot of players don't have and try to have. And, and he had it at a young age, and he modeled his early playing days after Tiger Woods, you know, like Tiger had Jack's marks and, and, you know, everything he's accomplished, you know, on his bedroom wall, Rory McIlroy could recite rounds and shots of Tiger Woods, the 97 Masters and some of Tiger's great feats. So it looked like a baton passing, a story kind of continuing from one great player to another. And I think this equipment change in signing this huge contract, Rory said it's put some pressure on him. He's had trouble dealing with the expectations of sponsors and the outside world expecting him to just continue to dominate. And I think it's been a culmination of factors. Changing equipment after winning five times around the world last year and two money titles. Um, having uh, the scrutiny now that comes with being kind of a one-name athlete like a Tiger or a Phil or a Nadal or a Federer. 
you know, you, you get more eyeballs on you. You kind of transcend your game, you transcend your sport, and more people are paying attention to every step you make. And this is still a 24-year-old player. I think he started to feel like his, the shoulders that, uh, you know, were getting kind of burdened with a lot of expectations that were even greater than his own. And he admitted to feeling some of that weight, and it was kind of affecting his golf. Is this something you think he's going to get over eventually, or is this something you think could doom him ultimately? I, I think he's going to get over because he's young enough and, and the talent is there. I, I really think that Sir Nisfaldo said it best when he thought that the equipment change at this point in his career, when he had so much confidence, was playing so well, was a dangerous move. And, you know, Roy said, listen, if I was going to do an equipment change, ball, clubs, everything, I want to do it now. I'd rather have six months of struggle than slowly putting in a driver and then the irons and then a ball. And I want to just adjust now. I think he's too talented not to find his way back, but this has been a daunting year for a player that had made the game at times in the last couple of years at Congressional and then at Kiowa where he won those two major championships looked very, very easy. The game was nothing uh, but difficult for Rory McIlroy in 2013. We're just a couple of weeks away from the golf world uh moving its focus to Western New York, just down the road from me here in Buffalo for the PGA. Obviously, Phil's going to be a big story after winning his first British Open, going for major number six. Obviously, Tiger Woods is always a story. What are some other things you guys are going to be tracking over at Golf Channel as it pertains to this PGA Tour, uh, PGA Championship, excuse me? Yeah, yeah. I think there's just so many names right now that, that we're seeing that can win. I mean, Tiger and Phil and and Rory will, will be the dominant stories for how well they're playing, and in Rory's case, how much he's struggling, and we'll all be wondering how Tiger handles possibly another weekend in contention. But there are so many players right now that seem like they're on the doorstep of breaking through like Justin Rose and Adam Scott have done already this year. You look at Matt Kuchar and Luke Donald and Brant Snedeker and Lee Westwood. There's just, you know, on and on. Billy Horsell, who won for the first time this year, um, has played so well. Hunter Mahan has played in the final group of the back-to-back majors now at the U.S. Open and again at the British Open. Graham McDowell has won three times around the world this year, won the 2010 U.S. Open with a Ryder Cup hero. Ian Poulter, a Ryder Cup dominant player, but yet to win a major, but shot 67 on Sunday at Mirfield, another player to watch. I think the depth and the strength of the PGA Tour right now is as strong as it's been in a long, long time. We're seeing players, you know, knock off major championships. The South Africans, Ernie Els, Louis Eustace, and Charles Schwartzel are playing so well and appearing on leaderboards. Ernie Els finished in the top five the last time the uh, PGA was at Oak Hill. So I think there are so many names. You could throw the names in a hat and throw it in the air and pull a name out of the hat and say, okay, um, it wouldn't shock me if X player won this championship. So I, I think the intrigue of going back to a golf course that is such a tough but fair test and the fact that so many players are playing well will make this a wonderful major to close out the 2013 year. Yeah. Listening to you, it's like there's so many guys. We went through a period where it's like, okay, is Tiger going to is Tiger gonna win by five or is Tiger going to win by eight? And now it's like, which one of these 30 guys is going to win this weekend? I mean, it's it's a big change, really. It really is. It really yeah. is. And I have to say, I mean, Tiger, he's a prisoner of his own success. He's also, you know, this is the guy that others have modeled themselves after. Jordan Spieth, you know, who won, you know, the 19-year-old a couple weeks ago, the John Deere Classic. I mean, he's someone that could break through. He had a very solid uh, British Open debut last week. There are players, Hideki Matsuyama, 21 years old, playing so 
well. There are young players that are coming up now that are in shape, mentally tough, and unafraid to win. These are all guys that have grown up watching Tiger for the last 15 years, and, and now Tiger's trying to you know, beat these young kids back, and then some old kids in Phil Mickelson and Ernie L. So he's getting it from both sides right now. Hey, do you miss writing at all? You know what? I do from time to time. I, I will write a story for GolfChannel.com when I'm moved. Um, I wrote a story on Mickelson at Marion. I actually bumped into them during my little reconnaissance trip. As I told you, like I went up to Oak Hill for a day. I went to Marion for a day for practice rounds the week before um, that championship, and Phil Mickelson was there, and I bumped into him in the uh, archive room there looking at some of the old Ben Hogan artifacts, and I was moved to write a story. Um, for my lifestyle right now with the triplets that are two years old, uh, the TV schedule works better for me. Uh, writing magazine stories at all hours, you know, up all night into the morning was getting tougher and tougher to do. I so respect my cohorts at SI. I, I do miss the camaraderie of the magazine. Uh, Lee Jenkins and, and Peter King and Tim Layden and Jim Trotter, some of my good friends in the business. I, I still read the, with so much joy and admiration when they bring to those pages. Uh, for me right now, I don't, I don't miss the, the, uh, the, the grind and some of the, the mental gymnastics that it takes to pull off a two to 3,000 word uh, magazine story. I wrote a couple of Super Bowl game stories for SI and a Masters game story, uh, you know, and a U.S. Open game story that I'll, that I'll never forget. And, and I'm pleased that I'm able to pull them off. That I was able to pull them off then. I don't know if I can pull them off now of given the family lifestyle, but, but I tell you what, I, I always love good writing. I still try to do it from time to time myself via, via blog or via the website at golfchannel.com. But uh, I am happy uh, and, and pleased in, in my new life. been trying to get better in TV. Last thing, did you, uh, were you curious? Did you check out the website launch yesterday, the Monday morning quarterback uh, football season? You know what? I did. I did. I saw the launch and, and the new look and, and the new lineup with uh, Peter and Jenny Ventus and, and Greg Bedard and, and a couple more folks uh, that are working with Peter now. And, and I, I'm so proud of Peter. I mean, he was such a great person to work for, really one of my mentors just in terms of seeing how he worked and the contacts he had and, and the knowledge that he has in football. And he's put together a, quite a staff, you know, that, that sports social is going to be just dominating. I think football coverage, he's, he's the must read, you know, he is, uh, you know, he's like, it's 60 minutes is something you have to watch on Sunday. Um, you know, Peter King's Monday morning quarterback is something you read the yeah. next day. If you, if you love sports and you'll talk about coffee and travel and all that stuff. But, uh, obviously he's a, the leading voice in football, and as someone who I used to spend time with, I'm so proud of him and the staff at SI that they're able to pull this off. Yeah, Greg Bedard was just on uh, this show here today as well with you. Yeah, so, yeah really great, great guy. Great writer yeah. and a great guy, yeah. and uh, a father of twins, if I'm not mistaken. Wow, five between the two of you, two births. <laughs> <laughs> Damon, thank you so much. Lucky number seven in the books. We really appreciate you doing this as always, and maybe we can hook up after uh, after. Uh, the PGA and, and kind of put the whole season into perspective. But thank you very much for doing this. Steven, that's the plan. Look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, man. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonette, Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> 
I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. Thanks to Damon Hack, who just made appearance number seven on the Sportscaster. It's always a delight to have truly one of the nicest people that we've met in this business on the show. Thanks to him for spreading some golf knowledge on us. We're going to move on now to a segment called Five on Fantasy. And again, if you're a new listener who is tuning in for maybe the first time today, again, we want to thank you for joining us and uh, introduce you to a segment that we do quite often, especially this time of the year and into the football season called Five on Fantasy, which really you shouldn't get hung up on the title much because it doesn't necessarily guarantee five of anything. Yeah, we used to, we did do lists in the past of top fives. Or, Sometimes we'll do that. Uh, it's almost never five minutes. No. It's just, more than uh, it sounds cool. Yeah, it's just a fantasy segment, which is usually somewhat gimmicky. We'll be the first to admit that. Uh, we usually come up with some kind of way to present fantasy football information a little bit different than information that's widely spread out there. Right. It's a little more structured during fantasy football Yeah, we do too. starts and sits. Usually right. every week there with, to varying degrees of success. Uh, but one thing that we wanted to do that we've done pretty much every year that we've done this show so far in this segment is kind of talk about the game itself and the way it's played. And one of the great things about fantasy football is that you could be in five leagues next year and all five of them will have different rules. Right. And it's what about those leagues makes each of them unique and separate from each other, which is usually the reason people are in multiple leagues. I think if you were in five standard scoring, standard drafting leagues, you, that might be boring. But sure. to be able to be in one keeper league, to be in an auction league, to be in a snake draft league, to be in a league that has this and that makes it cool. And one thing is we want to throw out to you, and you can communicate with us on email, thesportscasters at gmail.com, or on Twitter at sports underscore casters. What are some of the unique rules in your fantasy football league that you have come to love about the way you play the game? And we're going to tell you some of the ones that we used in the past. And again, to varying degrees of success. One we used that we stole directly off of, uh, I believe the way we heard it was, the guys at the ESPN Fantasy League, or Fantasy Focus Podcast, went to a home draft. Okay. And the thing that was unique about that home draft was their fifth round was called the Golden Round. And right. whoever you were drafted in that fifth round, you were eligible to keep the final, the following year. And we did that, and we liked it until one year Arian Foster was drafted in the fifth round. And because you didn't lose much for it, the guy who picked him the next year had such a huge advantage and ultimately did end up winning I think the he league. ended up with the number one pick. He too, did end up with the help. first pick, so he had Peterson and Foster yeah. and basically owned the league. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I started a league that's relatively young. It's only This will be its second year now, so the league itself is fairly vanilla as far as the rules go. But some of the things we like to do that I've stolen from other leagues I've been in the past is, one, the division draft. Uh, Super fun. Where the top two teams from the pri- prior year, the two teams that met in the championship, will actually draft their opponents. You, uh, so you obviously want to draft who you think is the worst player, so that gives a little bit of bulletin board material and a wrinkle... I added to my league was that the team that finishes in dead last gets to be named by the rest of the league until that team makes the playoffs again. So my team, uh, the team that was in last this year, uh, is going to be renamed, and maybe it'll be something like the Pink Fluffy Bunnies or something real humiliating, and they'll have to stay as that until they make the playoffs, and then they can change it the next year. Another thing we've done in the past is home field advantage points for the playoffs. Right, yeah, I Keep that. I kept that in my league. I like that enough. Basically, the way we've done it is usually each game ahead of your opponent has been worth two. 
Right. With the Super Bowl usually being a neutral site game, so not having the home field advantage. The one thing that people in my league have brought up before, uh, and I was unsuccessful in coming up with anything, is little extra ways to have other money prizes. Like we do little different bonuses at the end of the year, but they they were almost talking about like a weekly uh if you can knock out this team or a bounty. almost like bounties, right. But I couldn't figure out a way to successfully implement that, that it was because if, if you do that and like the average team goes seven and six and what, they're going to give up a couple dollars at the end of the year. It just wasn't worth it. But so yeah, send in your ideas for uh, just unique ideas that set your league apart and uh, maybe uh, I'll steal them. Another thing we've done is we, uh, it's not everyone wants to draft first, so instead of right. winning the lottery, meaning you have the first pick, it means you have the first choice at right. whatever pick you want. It's called Kentucky Derby style. I guess in the Derby, there's uh, some sort of lottery, and you get to pick which... your post. Right, right. Right, so where you want to. So all kinds of cool ideas, and we'd love to hear from you, the sportscasters at gmail.com or sports underscore casters. Let us know the unique wrinkles in your fantasy football league. The other thing we're going to talk about this week, real quickly, like we said, sometimes this segment can really ramble, and uh, we can talk a lot about this, but to keep this one a little bit shorter, because we got a full today. show. Yeah. Right. Uh, the other thing, we keep patting ourselves on the back for our Chris Johnson hate from last year, CJ2K. Like Vic the year before. He was going like, Vic, you think, was our guy? Yeah, I think the year before it was the year that Matthew Berry had him at number one. one, And we were against all out on that from the start. I don't even think I had him in my first round. I know I was approached with him at about the eighth pick that year, and I passed on him. I took a wide receiver or something, which didn't work out either, but I I didn't want Vic either. But Chris Johnson, we've given out plenty of terrible advice to him, sure, so we're not going to pat ourselves on the back too much, but... Chris Johnson was one we actually took to guys like Michael Fabiano and said, hey, what what gives here? What are we not seeing that everybody else does? And uh, he had like a sixth overall between like six and eight ADP, and uh, we were right. So over the next week or so, we're going to come up with our kind of line in the sand or the way that we are – our pick that goes against the crowd and – We'll see how we do. We'll we'll either come up with one each, or we'll just come up with the official sportscaster stance on just, some player. Just kind of looking at draft results right now, there's a couple guys who I'll consider for this. One of them is Steven Jackson, yeah, who right now is ranked as being drafted around 15th overall. I don't necessarily think that him becoming a Falcon is going to rejuvenate his second career round like it status, seems huh? other people do. He's a guy I don't think would be a second rounder for me. That's one that jumps out. Another one that jumps out, but maybe not in the way that Chris Johnson and Michael Vick did, but I think third overall is way too high for Marshawn Lynch, if you ask me. Yeah, he would be the guy that I think I would go to, not with quite the same hatred as uh, CJ2K last year, but he is a guy that... Doug Martin, Ray Rice, and Jamal Charles are the next three after him, with Peterson and Foster before him, and I think... As of now, I would probably prefer Martin Rice and Charles over Lynch. Trent Richardson's another guy that he's real interesting to me because he certainly didn't perform like he should be a top 10 pick last year, but he's going at number 10 right now uh, ahead of LaShawn McCoy, Drew Brees. Is Alfred Morris as good as 11? Yeah, I don't know. So these are the ones we have to explore, and again, that's something that you can communicate with us who you think is just highly overrated in preseason rankings and the early mock draft results and draft results that are coming out 
at sports underscore casters or the sportscasters at gmail.com. But yeah, we drew a line in the sand last year on Chris Johnson, and we're going to try to find someone that we can get that, I guess, I don't know, passionate's the right word, but that convinced about that everyone else is wrong. And he's, we'll, he's down to 24 now. You think that's right? You think he's being treated more accurately this year at 24 than he was last year where he was a 6-10 to 10 guy? I don't know if I want him still as my number two running. If I'm in a 12-team league, that means I'm getting Adrian Peterson and Chris Johnson. Maybe his upside in that case is worth it. But still, he's your second pick in a 12-team league. I might rather have like a Jimmy Graham. Demarius Thomas and Jimmy Graham are the next two right now. I might rather have Jimmy Graham and take that huge advantage I'd have every week at tight end. All right, so this is the kind of thing we do at 5 on Fantasy. Definitely let us know what you think about unique rules and who you're drawing a line in the sand on. And uh, Ben Folds 5, only three guys. So they used the 5 just because it sounded cool too. Right. The luckiest? Yeah, that's that's the band. <laughs> right. All right, we are going to take a break and talk about more music with the Grantland music critic Stephen Hyden. Our next guest is from Appleton, Wisconsin, and is a graduate of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. He is an American music critic and staff writer at Grantland.com. He is also a contributor at Pitchfork and the author of the ebook What Happened to Alternative Nation. His work has also appeared in Rolling Stone, Slate, American Songwriter, and Salon.com. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Stephen Hyden. How's it going today, Stephen? Uh, it's going well, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on. Uh, everyone who listens to the show knows that my partner and I are huge Pearl Jam fans. We got just about 100 shows between the two of us, and uh, we had a great time in London last week, Tuesday, together. Uh, my 73rd, I believe it was his 24th show, if uh, I'm saying that right. So I was pumped up. I knew this week I wanted to have someone on who could talk about the Pearl Jam at Wrigley show. I don't know. How do I want to say this? Maybe a little bit more objective, objectively than me, because I think in a way, uh, there's just no way for me to speak about these things objectively because Pearl Jam has, has meant so much to me in my life. But let's get to that in a minute. First thing I want to do is talk a little bit about Grantland and, and you working on Grantland. And we had Alex Papadimus on. Uh, our last show, which was a few weeks ago, we took some some time off for summer vacation and to go to the Pearl Jam show and stuff. Uh, and Alex was interesting because he was one of those guys on the show, one of the few guys that we've had over the years who basically their background is only in culture. They didn't, he he didn't really have much sports background at all. He said he's went, written one sports piece for Grantland, and and really that was just uh, something that really it was sport. It was a NFL column, but it wasn't really about sports. Tell us a little bit about your background as a music critic and. What brought you to Grantland and how you like writing for a website that's kind of this sports pop culture hybrid as opposed to some of the other stuff you've done in the past? Well, you could you could say that I technically got my start as a sports writer. Uh, the first job I ever had was as a sports editor. Um, I was 13 years old, and it was my junior high newspaper. So like, I was covering like JV boys basketball, stuff like that. But... Pretty soon after that, I went into sort of the culture side of writing. So, um, I mean, I, I write occasional 
sports stuff for Grantland. I'm a big Packers fan, you know, being from Wisconsin. So, yeah, I've written a couple of blog posts about the Packers, but basically I've been uh, you know, writing about like music and movies and television and stuff for most of my career. Um, and you ask me what it's like to write for like a sports yeah, I mean, yeah, it's kind of this unique culture that uh, Bill Simmons has created over there that I I, I enjoy it very much. I, I love the kind of you're, you're on the homepage and at one second you could be re- reading this like really in depth, nerdy statistical baseball thing that Jonah Carey writes, and then the next sentence you're reading about Alex Papadimus recapping the Kardashians. You know, I don't think there's anything like that on the internet anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, you know, it certainly comes from Bill Simmons' sensibility, you know, because he was doing that 10 years ago in his columns where he'd be writing about sports, but then, you know, he was writing about Teen Wolf at the same time and, you know, kind of going back and forth freely with that stuff. And it, it, you're right in that it's unique for a website to have that kind of split, but you know, in terms of, like, regular people, I mean, there's obviously a lot of people who are interested in sports and also interested in music and, and movies and stuff like that. So um, it seems like an idea that has, uh, you know, it's kind of weird that it hasn't happened before now, but uh, it's certainly an idea whose time has come. Um, I mean, for, for me, it's interesting uh, working for Grantland because, you know, before I worked here, I worked at... Um, this place called the AV Club, which is the entertainment section of the Onion. And it's like the non-satirical uh, part of the Onion. So, like, we, you know, we do, like, you know, they, they do, like, music reviews, movie reviews, stuff like that. So, you know, I was, like, a music guy for the Onion, and now I'm the music guy for ESPN, you know? So it's, like, two entities that you don't necessarily associate with entertainment coverage. So... Uh, yeah, that's sort of an interesting thing uh, where I'm coming from at. Now, are you are you based in Wisconsin still, or are you out in Los Angeles, or where where do you kind of uh, base your operations from? Uh, I live in Milwaukee. Milwaukee, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, in the middle of the country. There's actually one other Grantland person uh, who lives in Milwaukee, so it's kind of random, two Grantland people this year, but uh, there's a guy named Brett who writes about the NBA, well, I noticed in your column today that you wrote that this Pearl Jam and Wrigley uh, experience that you had was your first Pearl Jam experience since the Yield Tour, and that was kind of interesting to me because I was kind of surprised being where you were from in the country that you didn't make it out to Pearl Jam 20. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, obviously, like, you're a hardcore fan and, like, uh, you know, the, guy, the other guy who does the show, you guys are really hardcore fans. So, like, for me, um, I think I'm, like, I think I'm fairly typical for a lot of people that, that like Pearl Jam and that, like, I loved them when they first came out in the early 90s. Like, when they, like, when 10 came out, I was uh, 13 years old. So, I I bought 10 and I bought Versus and, you know, I bought all those early records when they were, like, you know, the biggest band in the world. Like, when they were selling, like, a million records in a week. In a week. Right. And uh, and then I kind of fell out of, you know, my fandom of the band, like, for, like, a long time. Like, Yield was the first record, I'm sorry, it was the last record that I bought, like, when it came out. After that, I kind of stopped paying attention for a long time. And, and that was kind of the point where Pearl Jam transitioned from being this, like, 
huge mainstream band to more of like a cult band. And, you know, they've always been able to tour and play really big rooms. But, you know, as far as like a band that sold a lot of records, um, you know, that was kind of the end of that period for them. So, you know, I saw them on the Yield Tour, and then, um, you know, I didn't really pay attention to them for a long time. And then, like, in the last, like, you know, kind of four or five years, I started, you know, like, I revisited those older records. And, you know, I was like, oh, these, these records are still really good. And, you know, they're, they're just one of those bands where, like, they're, like, one of the only bands from that era that's kind of still around, you know, that survived. Like, the 90s, a lot of those bands ended up burning out or breaking up. And, lot, and, and some of them are now coming back, like Soundgarden, you know, got back together. Um, Allison Change is, is still around, but obviously Lane Staley died, so it's not quite the same thing. And you know, especially Pumpkins are still around, but it's like only Billy Corgan and a bunch of like hired guns. So like Pearl Jam is kind of like the only band of that kind of like alt rock like '90s era that was more or less able to stay together intact. Um, so if you're able to do that, I think eventually, even people that weren't totally into you for, like, for a long time. You know, they're eventually going to come back. And, you know, this show I was curious to see just because I hadn't seen it for a long time. Um, and I was really glad I went. You know, as I wrote and I reviewed, I really liked the show. I thought they were great. Even though the show was kind of, um, was kind of a mess, you know, yeah. the weather. You know, it was very trying circumstances. But, you know, obviously you're a big fan and, and everything, so you know, you know this already, but like, I, to me, the reaction of that show, the reaction of that crowd, to the circumstances that were, you know, with the weather and the material with the way, I think that speaks highly to the following that that band has, because, um, I think a lot of people, you know, would have just bailed, you know, if it was any other band, there might not have been that kind of loyalty, but in that audience, you know, people for the most part were pretty willing to roll with the punches, and there seemed to be an expectation there that, like, if you wait here, even if it's like a three-hour delay, that it's going to be worth it. And uh, in a way, the delay ended up kind of making the show more notable than it would have been maybe otherwise, even though, like, and I'm sure you've seen this, like, the set list that they had planned for the show was, like, was pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it was about uh, eight or nine songs more. I think. Yeah, and like you know, they were you know, um, like they were going to end with Yellow Red Better, which would have been great. And you know, they were going to play I think Bob O'Reilly in the encore too, and and there were a couple other like kind of big songs yeah. that they ended up not playing like Alive and, and Better Man and stuff. But I don't know, like I, I I didn't mind not hearing those songs. You know, like you know, if I didn't hear Better Man, that's not a huge deal to me. It would have been cool to hear Yellow Red Better, but. Um, I don't know. I think people will remember this show because of the delay. You know, that's going to be probably something that makes this show maybe a little bit more notable than it might have been otherwise. And there is a song on that list called Other Side, which is uh, a B-side from the Riot Act album, which has only been played one time. So I think that that's definitely a, a bummer for some of the bigger fans who were there that that, that had to get left off. Um, well, they played Bugs, which was interesting. Right, I mean, that was the third time maybe, for that. That's maybe the most skippable song on psychology, yes. or at least like one of the, you know. But um, I don't know. It was pretty cool to hear it. Like I, I appreciated that he played that song, that Wrigley Field. You know that like, 
that's definitely not like the you know the automatic crowd pleasing song. So it's it's kind of a perverse choice to play at a gig like that. So I thought that was so even though I don't really love that song that much, it was kind of a cool choice in a way. So you know, I want to get your opinion on this. I think that you kind of mentioned this band and kind of the path that they've taken. They've kind of went from this band that was the biggest band in the world at one point, and then they went. They they kind of became looked at as these guys who maybe were I don't know how to put it exactly, but it's like nobody really wanted to fight Ticketmaster with them. They kind of like kind of did that on their own, and and kind of like what that was about kind of morphed into this like Pearl Jam whining kind of a thing, and you know, and and then they kind of like they cooled in a general sense, like you mentioned, and. But yet they were still able to have, like in 2000, I think that was a 72-show tour that was, you know, 20,000 every night. So it's they still had this massive following. But I think now they're getting to the point where they're this band who has kind of paved the way in a large extent for people to be out on their own. They haven't had a record label since Ride Act, I think, was the last album that was on a record label. They've been doing this kind of on their own for a long time now. And they play these incredibly long shows and... Every year, it's like something. Like in two thousand and nine, it was the last shows at the Spectrum, you know. And then in in two thousand and ten, it was you know Pearl Jam twenty. And then you know this year, it's Wrigley. It's always like this. There's something there, and I think that as as the years progress, their the appreciation for what they've done and what they've accomplished, and as you said, kind of like being able to keep their head above the. Um, the things that have dragged down some of their contemporaries in the last 20 years and being able to, at this point in their career, sell out a 50,000 seat venue like Wrigley Field in 30 minutes. There's, there's very few bands in this day and age that can do that. Well, and I think you're right in that they uh, do give an example to younger bands about how you can have a, you know, why, like how you can sustain a career over the long haul. Uh, they're definitely a band that like, decided, you know, at some point, like in the late 90s, that they were going to uh, foster a relationship with an audience that really cared about what they did. And that was more important to them than being, like, broadly popular, like doing things that would have, like, maybe been more, like, pop-oriented, which uh, has sustained them over the long haul. You know, they're really good to their fans, and you can sense that, like, there's a loyalty there, there's a relationship um, between the fans and the band that uh, has been really advantageous for Pearl Jam and like will you know enable them to to be a band for as long as they want. I will say that like Pearl Jam did benefit from the record industry as it existed in the '90s. You know, I don't think that they would have been able to sell out Wrigley Field if um, they didn't have those first like three records in their career. I think that there's still a lot of people that. Um, look at Pearl Jam. I won't say as a nostalgia act, but like they associate Pearl Jam with that specific period, like that beginning, like those first like four or five years of their career. Right, we call and, them. And, and, I, and I don't know how old you are. Like, um, like are you like in your thirties or yep, thirty-two? You're thirty-two. It's yeah. like I'm I'm thirty-five. So like I remember like when Ten came out and like Even Slow was like the big song, and that song was on MTV probably like it seemed like it was on every hour. Like that video was on all the time. I mean, they, so they were they were definitely a band early in their career who benefited from like an MTV, even though they decided 
I think after Jeremy that they weren't going to make videos anymore. Right. Um, but you know that that you know like that's but you know like back in the nineties like when it was when you had many bands that would sell like multiple millions of records. Um, I mean, Pearl Jam benefited from that and got a leg up, and then they're able to say, "Okay, we don't want to be a part of this machine anymore. We're going to sustain it our own way." I mean, like Radiohead was able to do the same thing. I mean, it's easy for Radiohead to say that we're going to sell our own record and not have to rely on a on a record label because they, you know, they're like Pearl Jam. They have a huge audience who are going to follow them wherever they go. You know, for a band that's going to start out today, they don't necessarily have that kind of advantage anymore. So I think you can have a career, but it's going to be really hard, I think, for a lot of bands to get up to that kind of level where you can sell out Ridley Field uh, because there's like 50,000 people that know your music. Yeah. and it, I, I listen to Howard Stern all the time, and he always says, he always says rock and roll is dead. In his opinion, rock and roll is dead. And I think Pearl Jam is maybe an example of a, a little bit of life still in the scene. But for someone who who covers music in general, what do you think about the status as rock and roll and, of rock and roll and Howard Stern's um, thesis that it's dead? What about it is still alive to you, and maybe what about it is dead? Well, I mean, it's, it, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about rock music um, in terms of like. I think you in know, terms of guitars but, and but, drums and bands, you know, I think not in like a rock and roll hall of fame sense where anything is rock. Well, I mean, I just mean like if you're, if you're, if you're talking about rock and roll in terms of like, you know, bands like Led Zeppelin or like, um, or, or Pearl Jam or U2, like, like bands that come along and just become enormous and become sort of like indicative of their eras and, you know, these bands that can just go on arena tours and, and draw like millions of people uh, to their tours. That, I don't know if that, if that, uh, I don't want to say it's dead, but like that is a lot harder to, harder, harder to do now, not just for rock bands, but like for any artist, just because of the way the music industry is now. It's really hard to have that kind of impact. Like Pearl Jam is really, it's part of a generation that was kind of the end of that, you know? But if you if you just look at rock as sort of like a creative entity, and you're looking for bands that are really good, no, I I don't think it's that at all. I think there's tons of great bands that come out all the time, and um, you know, and, and that and, and they have really good careers. I mean, they can go out, they can tour. They're not playing arenas, but maybe they play clubs or they play tours. Um, you know, like like a band like for instance, like The National. You know, who um, would be kind of the equivalent of like, not even like a Pearl Jam, they'd be sort of like a, the equivalent of like an REM, you know, and that they, okay. over the course of 10 years, were able to build up into an act that um, has a big following and can tour around the world. But, you know, after 10 years, REM was playing arenas. The National, for the most part, is playing really large theaters. Um, that's kind of like where things are now. Like, if you're looking for, like, the next Led Zeppelin or the next Pearl Jam, the next band that's going to just be ginormous, then you're probably not going to find that band. You know, it, it just seems like that's maybe not... It seems like that era of rock music is maybe over. But, you know, there's still lots of great bands coming out um, who are putting out really good records and having good careers. So I would argue against it being dead, but it's definitely evolved. 
Yeah, I bumped into a band a couple of weeks ago called American Authors from Brooklyn, who I was really kind of like blown away by. And I was like, you know, I would never have run into this band if I hadn't kind of dragged myself out to this free concert on the water here in Buffalo. You know what I mean? And I think you made a great point earlier about some of the advantage that Pearl Jam had back in the 90s that helped build themselves to where they are now. And I wonder if you can think of a band or two or three that maybe if they they were there, at, if those advantages still existed, that they could have built themselves up to that point, if, if I kind of explain that correctly. You mean like if there was a band today that... Like, is there a band or two yeah. today that, given the advantages that you mentioned that Pearl Jam had that helped to build their following, would have been able to do it? You know, if, if, if watching videos on MTV was still important and and being exposed that way, and if people still bought music the way they used to, you know, are there a few bands out there now that we're kind of missing, in a sense, because they don't have those same advantages? You know, that's hard to say, because I think that there are bands for whatever the era is, you know? So, like, for instance, there were a bunch of bands in the early 90s that... um, on one side had a lot of punk influences, and then, and then on the other side had a lot of classic rock influences. And the punk stuff is what made them fresh, and the classic rock stuff is what made them more commercial. And, you know, that, that was basically the grunge generation. You know, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, all those bands, all wrote really catchy commercial music that was easy for people to like, and yet at the same time, the way that they presented themselves was unique you know, it was different from what popular rock bands were like before that. So they were kind of made for their time. And they were made for, and you know, Pearl Jam, you know, they were they were made for MTV. They had a really good, good-looking lead singer, you know, who, uh, you know, that, that girls could get into. And yet, you know, guys could see them perform live and be like, oh, like, they look so awesome in you know in this video. I you know, I gotta go see them when they come to my town. You know, today I don't know if bands are like that necessarily because there isn't that kind of market anymore. You know, like band like rock bands don't have the same place in culture that they used to have. Um, like it was like, like like you know you have the band like the Black Keys right now who are one of the only rock bands that are selling like platinum level. You know, like, they put out a record, you know, sell, like, a million copies, which is, like, really impressive, you know, in two, in 2013. Right. Um, but, um, you know, they could have been big in the early 90s. You know, I, I don't know what it is about them necessarily that, like, makes them popular now. Um, I mean, I mean it, it, it's more than just being a good band, you know? I mean, there's a, like Arcade Fire is another example of a band that's like pretty popular, and they can play the same rooms now that Pearl Jam can play. Like when I saw them on their last tour, they were playing, uh, I think, the Rosemont Arena in Chicago, which is like a fifteen thousand right. or so seat venue, fifteen thousand, and and they're going to put a record later this year, and I'm sure it's going to be really big, and they're going to be really successful. Um, you know, and maybe they would have been successful in the early 90s. I know it's hard to say that, like, well, if you put this band on TV, then they, then they would sell way more records than they do now. Um, it's just hard to predict, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, rock and roll, it's in an, it's in an interesting place right now. Um, 
I mean, just pop music in general is, is, is interesting because it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to say that any genre is like superior, you know, is more important than, than the other, you know, just because people have so much choice now that, you know, you can choose to like whatever you like. It's not like in the early nineties when like grunge was really popular on MTV. So like, if MTV was your main way to hear music, you just heard grunge all the time. Right. You know, like now, no matter what genre you're into, you can just like program your Spotify or, you know, or your I, or your iPod or whatever. You can just, you can create a world where you just hear what you want to hear. And it doesn't matter like what some ginormous corporation is programming. You know, people have more control over what they listen to. Which is a, that's a great thing, but it's sort of hard to figure out if you're a music critic, like what's, you know, what's more important, you know, like what is the sound of today? I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what that is. I mean, you can say that rock and roll isn't very big, but then I was just at a show at Wrigley Field where there was 50, you know, 50,000 right. people there or whatever. So how is that not big? You know, so I don't know. That, that's hard to predict. That's kind of a rambling answer to your question, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I like it. This, the sportscasters are here with Stephen Hyden from Grantland.com. You can find him on Twitter at Stephen underscore H-Y-D-E-N. A couple quick things to kind of end with. One, I have to ask you this. At any point in that almost three-hour rain delay, did you think about bailing? Uh, not really. I actually had a really good time during the delay. I was sitting in an area where it was dry, so I, you know, I didn't have to get like you know, heard it off the field, like a lot of the, you know, like, like all the people who had the general admission tickets. And I was right, I was like right next to a beer stand. So I was like, okay, I'll get a cold beverage. Right. And I was with a friend and we just chatted. Uh, the only time it got hard was like during the show, like at one fifteen. you know, like at that point, I was starting to get kind of tired. And the band was really great, but it was just sort of like, ah, uh, do I care about the encore? And I was like, no, oh, screw it. I've, like, I've been here this long. I can't bail at this point. So, no, it wasn't that bad at all. I, I, I had a really good time. Like, the whole the whole experience I thought was, was, was a lot of fun. Do you think the way you're going to approach the new Pearl Jam record in October has changed at all based on the experience you had at the show? I think so. I'm actually, I mean, I would say that I'm, like, a lot more interested in what they're going to do next because of this gig. Because I really liked it, and and, and uh, that the, the, the single "Mind Your Manners," uh, well, not a huge fan of that song, but they played another song there that I thought was pretty good. Lightning bolt, it was a slower song. Yeah, well, was that the slower song? They played a song with Brendan O'Brien. That was Future Days. That was the third new one they played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was I thought that, I thought that was a pretty cool tune. Um, so you know, I'll, you know. I'll check it out. I, I mean, I, I would have checked it out anyway, but um, I'm definitely more likely to see them live next time they're in my area again. All right, um, let's, so I, so I really like the show. I thought it was really great. Let's end with this. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was, I was just going to say, I thought it was really great. I, you know, they're, they're definitely a band that, um, you know, they still care, and you can tell. So... And you know, and they care about putting on a good show, and also about like putting together a set list that's interesting. And um, and a lot of the songs I didn't immediately recognize. You know, I liked most of what I heard, so that was really cool. Do you like 
their late period records. Oh, I, I love them. I mean, I love them. Um, I thought I was really surprised how well the Fixer was received. You know, the single from the last album. You know, yeah. I thought that that certainly got a lot more than say Worldwide Suicide, the first single from the record beforehand. Um, it seemed like it had a lot more appeal across. Uh, across genres, maybe across ages, like there's a lot more younger fans, I think, on the last tour um, than maybe a few of the tours before. Uh, but um, I, I think critically, it seems like they've kind of come full circle. Where critically, it seems like their records get a lot more respect now than they did maybe in the no code through binaural period, where it seemed like critics kind of turned on them a little bit. Well, you know, I think you know the snobbiest rock critic in the world will eventually come around on a band if they've been around for a long time. Because it's hard to argue against longevity. You know, you can't argue with Pearl Jam in terms of, like, their staying power. Because they've proven that, like, there's an audience of people out there who will follow them down whatever path they take. And um, even if, like, you're not digging the new record or whatever... You know, the snobbiest rock critic in the world can't take that away from them. So, you know, that happens with every group that maybe goes through a period where they're not taken seriously. If you're, I mean, like, it happens in extreme situations, like even like like a, like, like a group like Insane Clown Tossy, you know, who never got any respect. They've been around for 20 years, and now, you know, people will write about the gathering of the Jekyllos with like, you know, they'll, you know, they'll take that seriously. They'll write serious stories about that because... It's undeniably a cultural phenomenon. You know, you can't deny it. You know, and in the case of Pearl Jam, you know, they're one of the only bands from their from their time that are still on the level that they're at. There's really, I mean, even Alice in Chains or Soundgarden, those bands are around, but they're not as popular as Pearl Jam. Right. You know, they're not even close. Um, so, you know, it speaks to what that band has been able to do in their career and also the music. People love the music. And, um, I mean, there's a lot of bands that would love their career without question that would want, that would want to do what they've been able to do. Um, but you know, it's harder than it looks, <laughs> you know, you know, but, well, as a fan, it's been a great, it's been a great ride to be on with them. I th- my first show was October 1st, 1996. And, oh wow, you know, so I've been there in all the different eras and, and really appreciated being a part of it. And um, I've kept you waiting. No, go ahead. Okay, yeah. I was just say, what's great about Pearl Jam now versus like when they were really big in the early 90s is that like there was a period where they didn't, where they hardly ever toured, you know, and it was because of, you know, the Ticketmaster thing. But like, like in 1994, 1995, it was like really hard to see that. Yeah, and in 1996, um, that was only 11 shows that they did in, in North America for No Code. And just luckily for me, Buffalo had just built an arena that wasn't a Ticketmaster venue. So we got right. that show, and as a 16-year-old, I was able to go to it. You know what I mean? So it's just kind of like a lucky thing for me. But yeah, that period, so, there was not many yeah, shows. Yeah, I mean, it, it's nice that you can just go see this band now. Because I, I, I do think that, like, you know... For me, their records have been a little, you know, hit or miss, like, in the last 10 years. But, like, live, it's undeniable. I mean, they're a great live band. So, even if you aren't feeling, like, the new record, I think they're a pretty dependable live act, you know? 
they're always worth seeing. You, so, mentioned, you mentioned in the column you're ready to reconsider yield. I would definitely do that, and I would definitely reconsider binaural. That might be one you totally kind of passed over. And you know, it's uh, so funny because like the hardcore Pearl Jam fans, like I, I was talking about this guy who was insistent that the best Pearl Jam period is 1998 to 2002. Like yeah. that was like he was like, and I, and, which to me, and maybe you agree with that. That just seemed like like a super perverse argument to make. I still think that, like, it's undeniable that, like, those first three or four records are, like, where the meat of their legacy is. Um, but that happens with hardcore fans sometimes. Sometimes you're like, I'm sick of the most popular stuff, and I'm going to seek out the more obscure stuff. And I fully understand that, that impulse. Um, but I just thought that was kind of crazy. It's like, there's no way that's true. But I don't know. Maybe you agree with that. I, I, Here's what I would say. Do you have a favorite record? Well, when I when I rank the records, usually I put Yield first um, as my favorite. See, how is that? Like, how can you do that though? Well, how part can you put of that above like ten or verses or Vitology or even No Code. I I I can't see that. Well, part of it for me is when Yield came out. I was a senior in high school. I went away to college, and Yield was like the only CD I took with me, and that was like with me on that journey and that part of my life like those songs are i i just it, it's it's more about like you know 1991 i'm 11 when 10 comes out and yeah it's the first rock record that makes a difference in my life and yeah i, I love it and from one to 11 you know from once to release it probably it might play the best of any pearl jam record but when you get so close to a band like I am with Pearl Jam and like maybe that guy you were talking with, there's certain things that happen over the course that maybe brings you closer or further away from a, a certain record. But right. but what I would say to you about Binaural is it's a perfect example of they were in a position with the songs that they had in the studio to probably make at least the second most commercially successful Pearl Jam record. But for whatever reason, they stopped short of that and a song like Sad didn't even get on the record. It's on the B-Sides record, which came out in 2003, but they could have had the biggest hit in Pearl Jam history right then and there with Sad, in my opinion, and they didn't even put it on the record for whatever reason. All right. You know, there's like a 20-song group of songs that are from the binaural 2000 era, and I think if you pick the 12 best songs from that group, you would have the best Pearl Jam record. But I, I'm not as extreme as some people. I love Ten and Verses and Vitology. Like Vitology yeah. is usually my number two. You know, like I love Vitology. So, right. but I've kept you well, waiting. Well, I, I, I understand that impulse because you almost get protective of like, well, this is like what the casual fans like, and you you kind of define if you define yourself as, as a hardcore fan, you're going to go with the more obscure stuff because. That's what hardcore fans gravitate toward. You know, they're going to go for like stuff that's maybe not as celebrated, and that's what you defend because it's underappreciated. You want to stump for it, whereas like you don't really have to argue with people that tend to great record. Right. Everyone thinks that's a great record, so yeah, I totally understand that. I, I get that impulse. I'm like that with some fans too. So, um, but yeah. Well, this was awesome, and I could do this all day, but I've already kept you way longer than I promised, and I apologize about that. It's at Stephen underscore H-Y-D-E-N on Twitter, Grantland.com. And is there anything else you want to let our listeners know about where to find you or a particular thing that you're doing? I mentioned the ebook, uh, What Happened to Alternative Nation, which I'm pretty sure yeah. I checked you can get on Nook and Kindle and iTunes and all that. So, 
Yeah, and, the, and I wrote about Pearl Jam in there, so there's like a really long section of Pearl Jam in there. So, uh, yeah, that that should do it, man. Thank you so much for doing this, and we're definitely going to have to do it again when the new Pearl Jam record comes out in October. I want to see what you think of it, and you know, hopefully okay. we can uh, we can talk some more. Thank you so much for spending so much time and for all the great opinions. We really appreciate it. No problem, man. Take it easy. Thank you. All right, I want to thank Stephen Hyden for being on the show today, talking Pearl Jam and music with us. also want to thank Damon Hack and Greg Bedard for being on the show. I want to thank everyone who's heard us maybe for the first time today, everyone who's stuck with the show from the beginning to the end. I want to thank you. I want to thank all the listeners who's been there from the beginning. There's a lot of you out there, my mom and your dad. <laughs> uh, I want to thank you guys uh, for being a part of this as well. And if you didn't like this show for some reason, just keep an eye on our Twitter feed, keep an eye on the website. We, we do a lot of different stuff, so there's always – something for somebody absolutely and you can find our website including our archives which over break i did a little spreadsheet with all of the guests that we've had on the show and how many times and when they've appeared and it's it's pretty impressive and you can find all those interviews archived at our website www.sports-casters.com you can also find us on twitter at sports underscore caster if you want to email us let us know what you thought of the show what you liked what you didn't Maybe some fantasy stuff that we asked for. You can email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com. If you have some questions uh, for Brett Martin about the book club book of the month, we're accepting those right up until the second we have Brett on the show. Uh, what else should we mention? We're not that great at plugging ourselves. That's something we have to work on. You just went through them, though. I got them. I got them all I in there. I think you got them all, Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm happy with that. Then, again, thanks to the guests. Next week, Elizabeth Merrill and Ron from MVP Magazine, which is an iPad-only sports magazine, which just put out issue number two in the i the Apple iTunes Music Store or App Store. You can find that there. Uh, the last thing we do every week is a segment called One Last Thing. Uh, one of us starts it off and basically goes on a mini rant for 30 seconds to two minutes uh, about anything, really. It could be sports, could be music, could be movies, whatever has kind of struck us. And then the other host kind of finishes out with one last thing, and uh, we're out. All right, let's do it. One more thing for me, and that's I don't know if you want to call it a midlife crisis. I don't feel depressed. I'm 32. But I all of a sudden am nearly obsessed with the idea of going to Comic-Con. It's like the nerdiest midlife crisis ever, but I'm looking at people in their costumes and like the celebrity panels that are there of all the things I like, like uh, Archer and just all these. It's I think I was talking to you about it maybe on Facebook, but it's it's the nerdiest niche thing, but it's also like hugely mainstream. Uh, the coolest, dorkiest thing ever. Right. Absolutely. And I know San Diego. Maybe that as my one last or my one more thing, I will throw it out to the people out there that have maybe been to one. I know there's one in Chicago and I know a guy that's been to it. He said it was cool, but he just was pretty sure it wasn't what San Diego is. I also know there's one in New York city and I want to know if, is that one close? Cause that one would be a lot easier for me to get to than San Diego as far as like cash goes and time or whatever. But it's not the most beautiful place in the world. That's it's not true. named after a whale's vagina. So that's true as well. And uh classy folks of San Diego, but, uh, and it might be easier to convince the wife of, hey, let's go on a nice vacation if it's right. San Diego. 
But yeah, I I really badly for some reason this year more than ever want to go to Comic Con, and I'm a 32 year old guy. Morlin or is his name Mor- What's his name? Morgan Spurlock, director. That sounds right. He yeah. did a really nice documentary about Comic Con, which makes it. I've seen that. Seem it's very great. appealing. Yeah, it just makes makes the whole event seem really fun. Really fun. I would go to it someday. I yeah, would. I've, I've heard a lot of people that yeah. said that. Like, and I might not wear a costume, but I might. I would go. I'm an average looking guy. Like, you wouldn't pick me out of it. Like, I'm fairly normal looking. You wouldn't think like, oh, that that's a costume wearing mouth breathing basement dwelling guy on my computer typing on forums and stuff but i would go and i would dress up. i do the whole nine i think it looks like a blast all right one last thing today and one of the things that don and i have in common is we are really proud to be older siblings uh we both have many younger siblings and in my case i have two brothers that i guess the whole world now knows i care about a lot and I'm very proud of. Oh, right. And sometimes it comes off as I have one brother and another brother. But <laughs> it's really not like that. Uh, no, I, I, have, think, I think Anthony has one brother and two other brothers. Or I think he is one person that has two other brothers. Is that how it goes? I think so. So anyway, that other brother, my brother Greg, is getting married this week. And I'm very excited about it. I'm very excited to stand up. I'm very excited to be able to talk about my brother in front of all of the, his 200 plus guests. And I'm excited to have a sister now. Um, I definitely was not in the market for a sister at age 11 when Anthony was on his way and there was some rumors that he was going to be a girl. I remember thinking, <laughs> wow, that would suck. you know. So that was not something I was into then, but something I'm into now. I'm really excited for Laura to join the family. Uh, be my first sister and really happy for Greg, proud of Greg, proud of them. And it's going to be a blast and I can't wait to tell everyone about it on the show next week. 